Yeah, you guys can clap Veronica if you want. That was probably, she, it's funny, is uh, we had her come read, and she's on front lines. Two things you have to be very personable, uh, personable about and friendly. And she is friendly, but she's not a big people-y person. So, so all you introverts who are complaining and whining about the meet and greet, hush it, okay? Annika set an example. Well, awesome. Well, hey, uh, we've been going through 1 Corinthians, and it's been a joy. Um, but we're actually going to take a little sidestep before Easter, and we're going to dive into uh, Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 6. And we're not doing it because, necessarily because of Easter, though every message we teach is great for Easter. Um, we're doing it because of some things that we're seeing. Now, I want to make a little point, though. You see that I have nothing in my hands right now? Yeah. Here's, so it's awesome. Got a face mic looking pretty cool. But uh, also, and I, uh, I'm promising as much as I can promise that this is being recorded. So if you are serving in kids' ministry, our messages are going to now be recorded. You'll get those on Tuesdays. They'll come out so you can actually listen. So uh, no more complaining. All right. Basically, I'm just here to tell you, you should stop complaining about everything. Um, well, hey, Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, which is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day draw near. When we start at the end of that, the day is drawing near. God is coming one day. And when God comes, there's going to be a great division. All right. Our God who is a unite God, and we're going to talk about today, we're talking about unity today, he's going to bring a great division where he's going to separate sheep from goats, wheats from tares. Those who believed in him and those who've rejected him will be divided and separated. And today I want to talk about unity. We've gone to Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 6, because in the last several weeks we've had a lot of conversations with people who are living in the hurt of what they perceive to be church division, uh, church pains. Why is this church suddenly existing. Did he come from that place or this place? And why does that happen? And is this all just a big divorce? And why is that? Why is that? Uh, this and that. And so we wanted to just take a time to sit and go into God's word and say, what does God's word say about unity? And how can we be about that? All right. I, I want to be really sensitive to this. Okay. As a guy who served five and a half years at a church that's in this town, is now planning a church that's in a gym. There might be a, a little sense of like, well, who are you to speak, Greg? Hey, you might be absolutely right. And so I want to submit myself, but I want to ask you to submit yourself under Ephesians 1 through 6, Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. And together, all of us will say, God, what do you mean by unity? Because when we see is, when we follow Christ, it always brings unity, but it also always brings disunity. So the thesis statement basically for this message is, unity is a result of oneness with God, but unity with God always creates division in the world. Let me say that one more time, but slow. And we're going to test it and see if it's true. Unity is a result of personal oneness with God, but unity with God always cre creates division in the world. About three years ago, um, the church of Cody was in a rough place, okay? There were several churches that were just, things were not going well, all right? And I'm not going to assume I know everything that was going on, but I know that people were leaving and going different places and stuff was happening, all right? It was multiple churches, and as one of the guys who was the, one of the only youth ministers in Cody, it became a burden for me because I knew there wasn't a lot of kids being chased down. And I knew in these churches, if, if we're all disunified and there's things going on inside these churches where everybody's kind of disunified, that means we're not probably pushing forward the kingdom of God the way that God would want us to. So me and some men from a different church gathered together to start praying. And what we started praying for uh, was unity in the church of Cody. 
And so we started praying for that for a while. But then what we realized was praying for uh, church unity of the church of Cody, uh, we needed to shift gears and start praying for unity within those churches. If we wanted to see unity among them, there needed to be unity within them. So we prayed for that for a little while. Uh, But then we started to realize, man, there can't be unity within these churches until there's unity within the local families, unity in the households. And then we quickly realized, well, there's not going to be unity within the families, within those households, until each person individually was united with God. And so we began to pray that each person who was the church would be united and have their eyes fixed on Jesus above everything else. That was what our goal was. And so we prayed for that. Now, because Satan is a punk and a liar and because we're weak men and filled with sin, you know what's uh, not funny is that group of men who are praying uh, because of sin, got disunified, and we stopped praying together. There's a war raging to destroy us. And we're so quick to turn in on each other. Well, they're doing this, and they're those kind of people, and we're these kind of people. You know, they're a Holy Spirit church, but we're a Bible church. We want to be a missions church. And uh, I think that the true church just says, hey, we just want to be a healthy church, which is missional, biblical, Right? Filled with the Holy Spirit. And so today, I just want to talk about unity as a result of personal oneness with Christ. And then I also want to acknowledge together that where there is unity for God, there will always be division. I think sometimes we think that if we're all just following Christ, everybody's just going to get along. It's going to be real sweet. Right? Everyone's going to love us. America's going to look at us and be like, man, those guys got it. That's not what they're going to do. It's not going to happen. So we're going to look at Ephesians uh, 4, 1 through 6, and we're actually going to start with the end in mind, all right? So we're going to look at as, uh, first point is as one, 4 through 6, and then we're going to talk about as one, we walk, verses 1 through 3. You track what I'm saying? So we're going to start with 4 through 6 and go to 1 through 3. So let me reread it to you because I want the word of God to convince you. I don't want to be the one that convinces you. I am not sharing the stage with Jesus, so I hope you're listening to him, not me. So this is what it says. There is one body... And one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So here's the thing Uh, oneness begins with, is centered in, and is revolved around God first. Okay, if you look at God, you get to see unity. Because if you're a Christian, if you're new to this, maybe you don't know this, but our God is actually made up of three parts. Okay, Uh, we call him the triune God. All right, and so he's made up of who? Somebody tell me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you say ghost, it's kind of creepy, but it's all right. Everybody's like, what does that mean? I'm just kidding. Um, But Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we say it's made up of three parts, but he's one God. All right. And a lot of people, when they hear that, they're like, okay, that's confusing, right? Okay, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, okay, that shows me three. And there's a lot of fun little quirky, uh, you know, analogies and things to kind of explain it, right? You know, uh, you could use the egg, which, you know, an egg is made up of three parts, but it's just one. It's got shell, white, yolk. Uh, or you could use math, right? People say, you know, one, two, three. That looks like three. But if you take what's one times one times one? Oh, my gosh, one. <laughs> Man, 
I might have to change the message again and uh, talk about mathematics. All right, so one times one times one is one. And so what it is is, listen, your little human perspective is always going to struggle to understand the triune God. But let me tell you one thing. That God, our God, is, can be, uh, the tri Trinity can be defined in three words, okay? Unity, equality, and distinction. Unity, equality, distinct, distinction. Unity, God is one. He is one. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. They are one. Our God is a one God, okay? And they're equal. Now, they're three distinct parts, okay? So they're distinct in their role and what they do and in their nature. But they are one God. But they're also equal in power and glory. The Father's not greater than the Son. The Son's not greater than the Spirit. The Spirit's not greater than the Father. But the Father is not the Son. And the Son is not the Spirit. And the Spirit's not the Father. But they are all one God, okay? So here's the thing. I'm not going to explain the full Trinity and get it to you where you feel comfortable with it, all right? That's not the reality. But what I want you to see is that our God is a God of unity. Before time, there was never a moment where God was not united. And so everything that God does is out of unity and love. Now, here's the thing. If you take that, well, those three words... Uh, that we use to define the Trinity, and you could use them for a lot of the human things that God has created for us, right? So one of the uh, most beautiful unity symbols in humanity is marriage, all right? What does it say? It says a man and a woman, because that's the only definition of marriage, is between a man and a woman. It says when they come together, they become one what? They become one flesh. Two become one, all right? So they are one. They are united together. And now here's the thing is, and, we, and for some reason our culture believes that Christianity doesn't say this, but it's true. We are equal in our value and dignity. Isn't that right? Women are not worth more than men, and men are not worth more than women. And we don't look to a pay scale to determine that. We look to God's word that shows us that, that we are equal. But we're distinct. You don't even have to have a third grade education to know that guys and girls are different. Right? Hang out with a dude for just a little while, ladies, and you'll realize they are weirdly different. And guys get stuck in a room full of girls. I, I took a mission trip with my students one time, and it was 13 girls and two guys, all right? They're different. They are different. No joke. I shouldn't even say it. I literally, we, we went to this reservation. We're doing all this stuff. And one day I went to one of my leaders, the only guy leader with me, and I said, hey, I'm going to leave, and I'll be back in a couple hours. And I just literally put my running shoes on and ran away. I'm not kidding. I just ran. I was like, I don't know when I'm going back, but I'm not. It's going to be a bit. All right. No. Women, I love you. You are equal with us. But uh, we're different. And so we say in marriage there should be unity, equality, but yet distinction. And it makes things beautiful. So unity and oneness begins with God. But the problem is, in the beginning of time when God created humanity, do we have oneness with God? The answer is yes. Right? In our innocence, before sin entered the world, we had oneness with God. We walked with God. But then something happened, and it created disunity, and that was sin. And sin always separates. Sin always separates. Remember that as we go through this whole thing. Sin is always going to divide us and separate us. But the worst thing it did is it separated us from God. The one true holy God was separated from us. Because he's holy, and we're sinful and unholy. And so we're separated from God. But God, as we're going to talk about next Sunday, and hopefully we talk about every Sunday, God did something through Jesus to bring us back into unity with himself. And he, what, what he did was Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, 
Verse 12, it says this. He says, remember that you were at, uh, at that time, talking to the Gentiles, talking to us, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now we know if you go to Romans chapter three, it says no one is righteous, no, not one. Even the Jews struggled to be at peace with God. They were separated. But listen to verse 13, it says this, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That song we sang, which I'm sure creeped out somebody in here who's like unfamiliar with church thing, it's like a fountain of blood poured on us. What, what kind of weird stuff are we doing around here? What, it's imagery to show that under the blood of Christ, the sacrifice of Jesus, the perfect blood of Christ, we are made perfect. And God tore down the dividing wall of hostility between us and God. And that's ESV is reading that to us right now. I know that voice because I've listened to it on the road. Uh, he tore down the dividing wall of hostility between us and God. So oneness with God is restored when we look to who? Do it, did anybody say pastor? No? You sure? How about your church attendance? You look to your church attendance to have oneness with God? How about, how about this? Should I go and look and see how big your house is? Is that going to tell me if you got oneness with God? What else do you guys use? How you married? What kind of job you've got? How, uh, how funny you are? Those are not the things that we look to to see whether or not we have oneness with God. The only thing that we can look to to have oneness with God is Jesus himself. He's the one who makes us one with God and restores our salvation. But in doing that, because the, the, the ground at the cross is level, every human being is separated from God. You know that? Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter if you were raised as a Southern Baptist PK and you were morally okay your whole life, right? Generally a good guy or a good gal. It doesn't matter if that's you or if you were raised in an ISIS home. The ground is level. You equally need to look at Christ for your salvation. So when you look to Christ and you find the freedom that only Christ can give, the son of Isis and the son of the Southern Baptist, they still stand on the same ground. They are equal in the eyes of God. They both have been united. They both have been adopted. And so God also doesn't just tear down the dividing wall of hostility between us and God. In Jesus Christ, he creates one body. That's what the scripture says, there is one body. So we look to the one spirit, the one Lord, the one God and Father, and through looking to him, he makes one body. Am I right? That's what I'm seeing here. So there's one church. Now, here's the problem. We have a tendency to look at buildings to determine whether or not we're one church. But we don't look at buildings because is the church a people? Yes. Is it a place? No. The church has never been defined in scripture as a building. Well, it's allegory-wise used as a building, but it's never looked at a building to say, now that's the church, right? But you drive around with your kids, and when your kid looks up and says, hey, what's that building right there? And you're like, oh, that's a church. You're wrong. It's not. And you should tell your kids, sorry, sweetheart, that's a building that the church meets in. The church is a people who have been united, and they're a global movement. We're black. We're white. We're Hispanic. We speak different languages. We come from different backgrounds. We eat different foods, but we're one, one body. And so sometimes I hear people ask this, man. Like I remember especially early on people would say, man, uh, does, 
does, does Cody really need another church? And I'm like, well, what do you mean by that? Whether, you know, and usually nobody really knows how many churches are in town. Here's the thing is I've counted them because I'm not an idiot and I go find this stuff out, um, right? And so at the time that I counted, last I counted, there's 22 of them, 22 churches. But are there 22 churches? No, there's one. But in your humanity, because of your flesh, you said, oh, there's 22. Do we really need another one? No, we just need the one to be the one. That's what we need. We need the one to be the one. And so we look around and be like, well, look at all this church disunity. That's one of, one of the number one arguments for Mormons. They argue with you is the Mormon religion was created because uh, Joseph Smith saw all the division and how everybody was disagreeing, and he took off and did what he did. And so we have this giant demonic movement called Mormonism because Christians would not start being one church. Now, the reality is we don't have to agree on everything, right? We've talked about this in the last several weeks. But there are some things that we need to agree on. And one of those is the greatest ethic, greatest theology, which is what? Starts with the L, rhymes with of. Love. You can't, add, you can't multiply one times one times one, but you got that one. Um, and so here's what ends up happening. We say, well, church, the, you know, that church split, this church split from here. And it was like that short, you know, they, they divorced this way. Here's the thing is I've heard this said uh, over the last several weeks, and I want to kill it so that you never say it again. Okay, and here's what I want to walk graciously and tenderly because I love Christ's bride. And I've, I've been criticized. People say, man, Greg, just, um, you're just, you're too hard on the church or you're, uh, you're always negative about the church. And I'm like, it just depends on what you mean by church. I might be harsh on what you call church, but I love Christ's bride. And I would not be doing what I'm doing if it wasn't for God's putting that love in me. It's all because of him because he loves his bride. But we should stop saying the word divorce, okay? I was not divorced from CMA because I was never married to CMA and they were never married to me. You know who I am a Christian married to? You know who you are as a Christian married to? Tell me. Jesus Christ. He's the only one that says the church's groom in scripture. You are married to him. And one of the problems that we do is when we start saying really bad language like that, as we start making the people say, well, well, do I choose to go with dad or I choose to go with mom? Uh, right? No, and that's not wrong. You choose to go with Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1 through 3, which we've been going through, which says, you're not following Paul or Apollos or Cephas. You're only following Christ. And we've got our eyes off of ourselves and our eyes off the pastor and our eyes off the building and just looked at Jesus. I think we'd be a little bit closer to being one church. And you do not need to wait on a pastor to be unified for you to walk in unity with Jesus and others. You should be pointing at pastors saying, listen, pastor, you need to get your stuff figured out because we're going to walk it out and we're going to have unity whether you do it or not. You tracking what I'm saying? Do not wait for me. I'm a sinful man. You point me to Jesus and you keep your eyes on Christ and you keep pursuing after him and you follow him because he's the one who brings unity. Pastors don't. Jesus does. Mm. And so this is what happens. When you get your eyes up, I've, I've used this analogy before, when you get your eyes up, you stop looking at yourself and navel-gazing and, and looking at other, uh, you know, the pastors, well, well, this guy and well, that guy. If you stop doing that kind of thing and you just get your eyes on Jesus, it's like being pulled uh, on skis, right? Only one, of, one person can pull you out of the drowning of your sin, and that's Jesus. And he pulls you up out of the water. And, and so I'm gonna use a skiing analogy because it's just the thing that helps me the most. If, if I'm tied to the boat that is Christ, Right? And Hans is, okay? All right? And Mark is, all right? And we're in, two different, we're in three different places here. But the boat's right there. All right? If, if God is moving, and I want to tell you right now, God is moving. If God is moving and we're tied to Christ, we're going to move towards Christ. But what's going to happen to these guys? We're going to all get pulled together. 
You do not create unity, God does. And as he moves and we get our eyes on Jesus, he brings about unity and then we maintain it. Do you understand? We gotta get our eyes off ourselves, get it on the boat of Christ and we say, we're following you, Jesus. Wherever you call us to go, we will go and pull us together. And so God's on the move and so we need to walk. So as one with Jesus and as one, as the family of God, now it's time to walk. Let's look at verses one through three. Paul says, I therefore a prisoner of the Lord. Have you ever said that about yourself? A prisoner of the Lord. So, uh, Paul, okay, you need to understand this. Paul, you guys know where he's writing this letter from to the Ephesian church? He's writing from prison. The bro is literally in prison. Now, I want to ask you, why is Paul in prison? He's in prison for Christ because he is a prisoner of Christ. That's why. And in being a prisoner of Christ, he taught about being unified with Jesus, the one Lord. And in doing that, what did it create? It created division. It created division. People did not like him talking about Jesus and preaching this one Christ and getting everyone, Jews and Gentiles, to walk toward Jesus. And so they threw him in jail. He preached unity. He got thrown in jail. It created division. You hear that? It put him in jail. But here's the thing is, he is a prisoner of Christ. Are you a prisoner of Christ? It uses it in scripture, it says it a different way. It says he's a slave of Christ. And if you're a slave of Christ, that means that Christ bought you from somebody else. Right? Who did God purchase Paul from? Romans chapter 6. Let me read this to you. Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Okay? So who did Jesus purchase Paul from, redeem him from? From sin. He was a slave to sin. I was a slave to sin. You either were or are a slave to sin, and you obeyed it. You did what it asked you to do. Now here's the thing is, slavery to sin, and a lot of times, because Satan has been doing this for thousands of years, one job, and it's convincing your heart that you don't need God. And one of the ways he does it, he tries to sell you some type of freedom that really is a false sense of freedom, is really slavery. Like you see these signs of these girls raising this up. It says, my body, I can do what I want with it, right? Right? Uh, this little, this thing that's growing in me, it's in my body and it's dependent on me. It's a parasite, so I can do whatever I want. It's not paying rent. It's my body. I have the freedom to do what I want. But what that young lady doesn't realize is she's enslaved to her own selfish desires. And what that will cause in her is a, it's going to charge to her account something that she can't pay, a guilt and a shame. And if that was you, I'm not, I'm not trying to put guilt and shame on you. Our God died for women who have that thinking. But I want to tell you right now, that's not God's thinking for you. He wants to set you free from that thinking because Satan wants to enslave you with you're the most important thing in the world. And he wants to give you a false sense of freedom. Man, if you just, look, if your parents would just leave you alone and you can just go and date that boy and just do what you want, just let us go do what we want. It's like, I'm telling you right now, that's slavery. It will entrap you and you will find your yourself in a place where those chains are making you bleed to death. Name your sin, it's slavery. And you're trapped in it. And you can never have enough, right? You can't have enough. 
You can never have enough. But verse 17 of Romans chapter 6 says this, but thanks be to God, right? Hallelujah. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. And so Paul is now a slave of righteousness. He belongs to God. He said, I I belong to God. And so I'm gonna preach unity to God. I'm gonna preach this, this freedom that God gives. I'm gonna preach it no matter what happens in my life. And here's the great thing about being a slave to Jesus. If you're a slave to Christ, now a lot of people, we look at Christianity and it looks confining, right? It's got all these rules and all this stuff you gotta do. And you're like, man, that was so confining. But what does Jesus say? He says, take my yoke upon you. It is light. Some of you are more enslaved to your sin and feel the weight of your slavery than Paul did when he was literally in prison. Because in prison, Paul never felt like he was enslaved. He felt free. He said, I'm gonna keep writing letters to the church. I'm gonna start sharing Christ with these, with these guards. Because whoever's been set free in Christ is free in everything. A guy who knew this better than all of us in this room, probably knew a little bit better than Paul did, was a man named Richard Wormbrand. Richard Wormbrand. Right, he wrote a book called Torture for Christ. You should go on Amazon, watch this video this week, the movie, Torture for Christ. Um, go watch it. But uh, this man spent 14 years in a communist jail, Russian jail, where he was beaten severely, left in isolation for three years. But you know what Richard says? He never felt like his life was being taken from him. He felt like he was being given life. Because while he was in prison, he discovered that he had more freedom in his heart than the men who had freedom to go in and out of that jail. More freedom than men that beat him. And so as they would beat his feet literally to the bone, he continued to share about Jesus, the thing that got him in prison in the first place. After he got out the first time, he went back to doing what Christians do. I'm going to continue to preach Christ crucified. I'm still going to be about the church because I love her and I'm free. And then one of his uh, brothers in his little house church turned on him, turned him into the into the police. And you know what he said before he went in, as they pulled him into that van to take him back into prison? He screamed out to his wife, tell the pastor who turned me in that I love him. That's a free man. That's a free man. And so as prisoners of Christ, as Christians, I don't care if you're from outpost, I don't care where you're from, you're a prisoner of Jesus, now you gotta get walking. You gotta walk, you gotta move, right? Uh, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to Walk. What does walk mean? Literally, it means just to move. Get moving in your faith. But this is what we do. Men, look at me. We do this so often. You're waiting for somebody else to get walking so you can kind of tail in on what they're doing, and then you'll walk. It's called fake faithfulness. You don't wait. You walk. You get moving. Wives, you don't wait for your husband to suddenly, like, get his poop in a group and, uh, and start following Jesus. And we just recorded that, and that's going to be online forever. But here's the thing, you don't wait. First Corinthians 7, you just continue to dress yourself with righteousness. And you be an example to him in speech and faith and conduct, and you follow the Lord. You don't wait on him, you walk. Husbands, you don't wait for your wife to finally catch up and get a passion for Christ. You walk, and you wash her in the word, Ephesians 5. You be about it. You don't wait for a pastor for you to start walking out unity with other churches. You know that? With other congregations, you don't have to wait on me. You could be about it. And I'm so thankful that some of you are being about that. You don't have to wait for your coach to finally follow Jesus. You don't have to wait for your friends to finally follow Jesus. You just need to get walking 
And listen, I urge you to do it because it's the best life. It's the best path. Psalms chapter one says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. You wanna get walking? Get in the word. Say, God, where do you want me to go? We, we say this at Outpost all the time. This is our authority, conscience, and guide, this word. Wherever it tells us to go, we wanna walk that way. We don't care about church culture. We don't care about church background. We care about what this says about the church, what Christ calls us to, and we say, this is what we're gonna do. You know what happens when you do that, guys? Not letting the pastor read it to you, but you reading it, what ends up happening is you start to be like the man in Psalm 1. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season. And all he does, he prospers. Don't believe the lie. Following Jesus is not gonna make you be like healthy, wealthy, and prosperous financially. But I'll tell you what, you may be completely poor in prison, getting beaten, you say, I'm the richest man here. Get moving. But hey, it's not just important that you guys walk or that you get moving, it's also important how you walk, right? So he says, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, worthy of the calling in which you've been called. Right? Have you ever had somebody, like, you get in an argument with somebody that hurts your feelings, and you go to talk to them about it, and you're like, man, I just, I just want you to say you're sorry. And what do they do? They're like, fine, I'm sorry. You feel better? You're like, yeah, I, I actually, I feel a lot better. Thanks. No, because it's not just important that you say it. It's also important how you say it. It's not just important that you check the boxes. It's important how you walk out. We walk in a manner worthy of the, of the calling which we've been called. Who's called us? Who's called me? Jesus. How has Jesus called me? What kind of walk did Jesus have? Well, he says it right here. It's with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We're called to follow Christ's example, to walk with humility. And one of the one, number one things killing Christ's bride is their pride. But our Savior Jesus could never be higher than he was. King of the cosmos, creator of all things. In, in Proverbs it says that God, can, is like, he can control kings like water in his hand and he can turn them wherever he wants them to go. I'm not anxious about what Joe Biden does. I'm not worried about kings around this world because my God just sits there and he plays with them like water. But that king lowered himself to put on a flesh bag like ours, to walk among us, to be in the heat of the day and the cold of the night, to have sleepless nights, to be beaten, to be abused, and to one day to humble himself to the point of death on a cross for prideful, arrogant schmucks like you and I. That's humility. And that's what we're called to walk in, is humility towards one another, saying, then look, the ground's level, the cross. And I'm, I'm, I am more closely related to a murder and rapist than I am to Jesus, and so are you. We're more closely related. And so we're called to walk with gentleness. Wasn't Jesus gentle? He literally says that a bruised reed he will not break. Literally, just a reed. You know what a reed is? It's just like a little grass blade. Maybe just a little crooked, it's a little broken a little bit. And he's like, I'm not going to break it. I'm gentle with you. And he knows that some of you, man, you are tenderhearted right now. There's things going on in your life, and you just feel like, at any, like a strong breeze, and you're going to fall over. And our God says, hey, I'm gentle with you. Shouldn't we be gentle with one another? He's patient. Who's more patient than God? He is patient with us. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He's filled for, with, with love for us. Even when you were dead in your trespasses, he says he loved you. 
And he showed that by getting on the cross. He's united with us, and he also created a bond of peace. He came to preach peace to you who are near, and priests preach peace to those who are far away, so that we can have peace with one another. Our peace with God creates peace with one another, doesn't it? Even with those who beat our feet to the bone, we say, I've got peace. I think a great example of this uh, is the relationship between uh, King Saul and David. If you know the Old Testament, this will make a lot of sense, but let me explain a little bit. Um, uh, Israel was a very broken, messed up uh, nation, okay? Go read the book of Judges. You're gonna come out super depressed, okay? Come, come see it. We'll, we'll, like, we'll love you. We'll give you a cookie when you're done. And, but the reality is like it's just busted up and broken. And so finally the people of, of God, they don't wanna follow God anymore. And they say, give us a king. And so what God does is he just says, okay, I'm gonna give you a king, but it's not gonna go well, but let me give you a king. And so uh, God uh, chooses a man who looks like a king. He's, he is head and shoulders taller than any man in Israel. He looks like a king. He's a big guy. And you know what? He actually ends up being a great king. He leads well, he unifies the people, they go and fight and win these wars. But in his kingship, he began to take his eyes off of Jesus, stop being united with Christ and got his eyes focused on himself. He began to turn inward. And as he began to turn inward, he became really hostile. And he stopped listening to the Lord. He started going his own way. And he became a madman. And God turned from supporting Saul and said, I'm gonna find a different king. And so after turning from uh, Saul, he tells Samuel, a man who's a prophet, says, I want you to go to the family of Jesse and you're gonna anoint one of his boys. And so they all roll up all their boys and uh, all these big boys, there's like, nope, it's none of these big boys. And so what does he do? Instead of taking a guy who's head and shoulders taller than everybody, he takes the little teenage boy from a pasture who watches sheep, which are super dumb. And he just takes him and he says, you're gonna be the next king. Not because he was head and shoulders taller than everybody, because his heart was more in love with, Jesus, or with God than anyone. And Samuel says, man, this guy doesn't look like a king. And what does God tell Samuel? Men look to what's on the outside. I look to what's on the inside. And so in 1 Samuel 17, he anoints David. But here's the problem. He's anointed David to be king. But guess who's still king? Saul, the madman. Now God uses David and David kills this giant. You've heard about it. Uh, through the power of God, and eventually he gets brought in to play. He's, not only is he a, like, just a bad dude with a sling, he can also play guitar like nobody's business. And so he starts playing music to calm Saul down, and Saul keeps him close because he really likes him. Well, then he starts sending uh, David out to go fight battles, and David starts beating, winning every single battle he goes into because the Lord is with him, and he just submits his ways to the Lord. But here's what happens. When somebody starts to be successful in your kingdom, in your king, and you're a jealous king, you got to go. And Saul begins to grow jealous of David and says, you got to go. And one day, this jealous king takes a spear. They're at a dinner, takes a spear, and he throws it at David. Tries to pin him against the wall. Misses. David dodges. So he pulls out another spear, throws at him. Same dinner. Throws another spear at him. David dodges. Here's the reality. In the church, we do this so often. We don't just dodge. We pull the spear out of the wall and we return it. Am I right? That's what my flesh wants to do. You start, you start hailstorming spears of insults and accusations at me. You know what my flesh wants to do? I'm like, let's go. I'll give them right back. And I want to pull it out and I want to throw it. I don't want to dodge. I'm too prideful. Instead of being gentle, I'm abrasive. Have you ever had spears thrown at you? In your relationships? In the church? But David dodges because he knows it's better to dodge than to throw it back. But then eventually David has to not just dodge spears, he's got to dodge 
just the king and his entire army because Saul has now turned on him entirely. And so what does David do? He has to run like a dog and he has to go hide out in the wilderness in caves where dogs hide. And so he's living in these caves. And I love what 1 Samuel 22 says. He's totally alone and isolated. But then what does God do? He sends him some men. Uh, it says this in 1 Samuel 22, 1 through 2. It says, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all of his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And they were with him about 400 men. And I know that 400 men eventually turned into 600 men. Men of war, men who were thieves, liars, not, people who are just not welcome in Saul's courts anymore. And they gathered this man named David and they began to run with him for a decade in the wilderness, hiding in caves, running for their lives. While Saul, who was bitter and frustrated and focused on himself, like some church gatherings can get, where they become the big dog and they lose sight of the kingdom and then suddenly the kingdom is all about them and now they attack anybody who's gonna, underneath their care, who does any type of good. And so it leads to a day where Saul is chasing down David and David is running for his life and has to hide in a cave, gets in a cave and hides. And according to God's sovereignty, Saul, chasing him down, eventually has to go to the bathroom. And so what does he do? He goes into a cave and it's the exact same cave that David's hiding in. And so the story goes like this. While he was sitting in the cave, David's men are around him and they, and they say, David, God has put him in your hands. Go and kill him. Let's end this run. Let's end our hiding. So David pulls out his sharpest knife, slowly and stealthily comes up behind Saul, takes out his knife and slices off a piece of his jacket. And that's it. And fades back into the cave because his heart struck him. The spirit of God struck him. And who does he listen to more than men? Only one, that's God. He doesn't listen to what men have to say. He doesn't listen to the gossip. He doesn't listen to all those fears. He only listens to God. And so Saul goes out with a little hole in his jacket. And as Saul goes out, eventually David follows him and says, hey, Saul, this is yours. And today God has shown who he's for because he brought, me in, brought you into my hands, but yet I did not kill you. There's a book I'm reading, it's called Tale of Three Kings. It talks about Saul, David, and Absalom. Saul, a man who tried to keep the kingdom too long. Absalom, a man who tried to take it too early. And David, a man who had to go through severe suffering and pain to finally become the king he needed to be. And this is what it says, this, this writer, this is just a nonfiction writing, uh, wait, nonfiction, fiction writing of this situation. So Joab is, is talking right here. Joab is David's cousin. And this is what Joab says. It says, look at us. He's yelling at David. Look at us, we're like animals again. Less than an hour ago, you could have freed us all. Yes, we could have all been free right now, free. And Israel too, she could have been free. Why, David? Why did you not end these years of misery? Can you imagine that that's how they felt? Absolutely. There was a long silence. Men shifted again uneasily. They were not accustomed to seeing David rebuked. Because, said David, slowly, and with a gentleness that seemed to say, I heard what you asked, but not the way that you asked it. David's responding with gentleness. Where did he get it from? From God. Because once long ago, he was not mad. He was young. He was great. Great in the eyes of God and men. And it was God who made him king. God, not 
men. And Joab responds, Joab blazed back, but now he is mad, David, and God is no longer with him, and David, he will kill you. This time it was David's answer that blazed back with fire. Better that he kill me than I learn his ways. Better he kill me than I become as he is. I shall not practice the ways that cause kings to go mad. I will not throw spears, nor will I allow hatred to grow in my heart. I will not avenge, I will not destroy the Lord's anointed. Not now, not ever. That's a free man. Friends, it is time that we got our eyes off of ourselves and we looked just to Jesus. You don't need to look to Greg. You don't need to look to some pastor. You don't need to look to some denomination. You need to look to Jesus Christ and him crucified and say, I will follow him, the one who is humble, the one who is gentle, the one who is patient. And I will not do what mad, this mad world is doing. I will only do what Christ calls me to do. And I'm not going to wait. I'm going to walk. I'm going to get moving. Do you understand that? You showed up to this little Christian service thing and we set these chairs in rows, but stop acting like this little staunchy little church thing that we're doing here. You are human beings who are going to leave here and go to places that are not in chairs and rows. And you're going to have to go act like it. You're not acting like it right now. You're just gathering together to hear me talk about it. Now you need to go walk about it when we leave here. You understand what I'm saying? What a waste of time. If this is a hobby for you, there are much better hobbies. Go do something else with your life. What we need and what the world needs is the church of Jesus Christ who will walk it out. He'll just be about it and we'll get their eyes on Christ. Now let me look at the last verse. Let's go back to the last verse real quick because you need to know this because you're going to leave here and you don't trust Jesus. But let me tell you why you should. Verse 6, one God and Father who is of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. What does that mean? That means that nothing surprises our God. Nothing makes him anxious. He's in it, he's through it, he's with it, he knows it. You're going through something right now and you feel like God's not paying attention. He knows it far better than you do. He knew it before you were even born. And he's right there with you. He says, I'm with you. Richard Wormbrand was wondering why was this happening to his people where they're murdering their wives, slitting their son's throats, beating them in front of them. But he says, listen, my God is above all this. You think David was in the cave thinking, man, God, where are you? We know he was because he wrote songs about it. It broke his heart. He's like, God, where are you? But for a decade, he trusted him and he became the greatest king Israel ever had because he looked not to what was seen, but to what was unseen. Friends, it's time that we be the church and we walk united. It's not about outposts. It's not about CMA. It's not about Cody Bible. It's not about House of Prayer. It's not about any of these, uh, these names and buildings. It's about the one God of the one body. It's about the one faith, the one baptism. It's what it's about. So when you leave here, I want you to start praying for the other saints. I want you to start acting like one of the saints. I want you to pray that uh, the men who lead these places would start getting their eyes on Jesus and stop looking at their own kingdoms. And that we would be about it. But don't wait for us. You be about it. If you need to, man, come, come grab us by the collar and say, it's time to get this things. Let's get, let's get things right. But you need to know this. You need to remember this. If you seek unity with God and you seek to walk united with God, it will create division. And not all division is bad. Let me say this at the end, okay? I want to close with this. Some of you are not united with Christ. And I'm telling you right now, there will be a great division between us and you. It's going to happen. And right now, this is the greatest heaven you're ever going to experience. 
For us who are believers, this is our greatest hell. This is as bad as it gets here on earth for us because we know that one day we're going to be united with God forever. We never have to know what he, wonder what he looks like. We never have to wonder what he sounds like. We're going to be with him. And I want to invite you, God wants to be united with you. If you don't believe me, look at what great lengths he went to get you. He allowed himself to be nailed on a cross for you. Be united with him. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for doing what only you could do. And thank you for rescuing me and buying me from my slavery to sin. I pray for men like me who lead. And this room is full of men and women who are leading. I pray that we would not become our own personal kingdom builders, but we would be personally united with you for your kingdom. God, build your church. And I pray that we would be faithful to follow you. I pray for those in this room who do not have a relationship, that they would become soft, their hearts would become soft to your call. And they would see that you want to have a relationship with them. And I pray for today, this would be the first day that they could take a step with this highly relational, humble, patient, loving God. And God, may you be glorified in their relationship with you. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.